Welcome back to the Rogue Philosopher Podcast with Dr. Jesse Workman. I want to initiate this by talking about fear, fearfulness, the fear of things, or maybe fear used as a means of, of coercion or behavioral control, whereby people try to convince you to do certain things as a result of, of fear, whether those fears are justified or entirely groundless. And the idea of fear, just as a, as a, as a concept, as an emotion, I'll get into that a little bit. And again, I'm going to do this in like 15, 20-minute pieces, so there might be three or four of these. We'll see what it takes. Although I find I feel strangely uh, inhibited and, and suppressed, not at, not at my best. And now, just in the interests of clearer disclosure, not, not totally full disclosure, of course, but clearer, um, this is falling a few days after the so-called retreat from Afghanistan. We're around a week away from September 11th, so it's the 5th. Might be recording this over a two-day span, so of September. It's been too long since I've done this. And I think a lot of people have a lot of good reasons to feel fearfulness, to feel worried about some things. I don't know any better than you what the answers are. I mean, in this case, I'm as bewildered and as as confused and as perhaps even existentially intimidated as anybody else. It doesn't having a knowledge of philosophy doesn't afford me any additional insight or ability for 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 comfort or for clarification in this case because I I often wonder if this country is in decline now, and this is what it feels like to be living in a once powerful country that's in decline, then I can more easily imagine living in Rome, living in the Roman Empire, or the fall of Constantinople, or in these powerful countries. I know of very few that survived their fall. I mean, they may, they may have survived as a people, but not as a not as a nation in most cases a nation would have been obliterated along with its fall um in the ages of democracy it seems like there's still a great britain even though they're far from an imperial power now france which their colonialism was was a bit nastier even than britain's was um they're still around but i mean these are western democracies or parliamentary democracies and what we're used to seeing collapsing in, in history when we study history are these imperial powers, either ruled by an emperor or they're, well, in the one case of the Roman Republic, but that wasn't a republic in the traditional sense that we understand republic to be. Um, and a lot of these countries, their their fall was preceded by a loss of influence in the world, a loss of prestige, a loss of trust weakening of their currency, etc. Um, defeats on the battlefield. It's usually where you really start to see the 
the nation is is tottering is when initially their troops are defeated on the battlefield you know in in war after war or conflict after conflict or however it goes just the once mighty prestigious army is losing in the field and that's usually a sign and you know preceded then by in- inflation currency devalues um there may be a series of natural disasters that that hit the empire um even in the case of you know the indigenous empires of the americas the the mayan uh whether hit by a series of droughts or of disease case of the the roman empire its final downfall although justinian attempted to revive it the plague of justinian he should have seen that one coming right it didn't do them any good when it swept through their cities and some people speculate it was the black death um there's a loss of internal cohesion in the nation and how they define themselves or how they treat one another. It's often a sense of neighbors betraying neighbors, friends betraying friends, etc. As though there were a collapse of intent, of a shared intention. Um, it's manifested in historical empires as a sudden revival of former tribalism, Perhaps one of those former nations that was conquered by this empire decides, well, we, we no longer want to be a part of this decaying empire. We'll have a, re- a rebellion, and then we'll reestablish our own small state, Han China. It's collapsed. There were, there were many small states that rose up and declared themselves independent again. And the same thing in the, the Assyrian or... You know, the various empires in history, Babylon, Rome, etc. And so are, are we living in a time of, of decadence, of, of the decay of, of American hegemony, American em- empire, for lack of a better word? Because even if we're not ruling these other countries, I'm sure they would not qualify it this way, but even if we're not oppressing other nations, you know, the way that... Uh, the Assyrians may have done, or the way Rome may have done. Our culture dominates the world. Our cinema, our, our products, our commercials, our cartoons, our comics, our, our entertainment, our video games, etc. There's a kind of blanketing of the whole world with, with our music and our culture. And it, it oftentimes shuts down. Although, you know, in India, of course, there's Bollywood, and they're strong. And in Nigeria, it's Nollywood. But, but, you know, there are very few countries in the world that we haven't touched, whom we haven't left totally invaded by, by our culture. Um, so there, there, there's a kind of soft dominance. We'll call it that. Because, you know, people, people choose to watch our movies. They don't have to, you know. They, but there is a kind of a... There's a kind of identity, the United States, the city on the hill, you know, a light into the nations, and that, that's what we should be, that's what we, I think in our best days, that's what we were um, when we helped destroy Nazi Germany and defeat the Soviets in the Cold War, that's what we were, we were a city on a hill, and although this country did a lot of awful things, humans do awful things, human beings are flawed or evil, and Sometimes our country did flawed evil things, I'm sure. 
I'm sure nobody would disagree with me in saying that, but in our best, I mean, they, our immigrants have always had a difficult time when they've come to this country. They're usually the ones who've enriched it the most over time, and they were never welcomed with open arms. They were often harassed, nativism. They were attacked. I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's not. Of course not. Um, but if even at our best, we, as citizens in our past, didn't treat newcomers very well, even though we're all immigrants, then what is this, what is this that we have now? We, we, have, um, we have borders that are vastly too open and unprotected, or we have a total shutdown where we're not even welcoming refugees who have reason to be fleeing from their countries, that, that they're fleeing murder, or they're fleeing an unfixable situation in their countries. They're in fear for their safety. America, we're supposed to take in people like that and to protect them, because that's what we do. We're a democracy, but I'm not even so sure of that any longer. I'm not even sure anymore that whatever this is, you can't call it a democracy anymore. The votes make no difference at all. And as far as the the political gridlock in our in our government, it do, it barely functions now. The government does not function now. And I think what I watched over the last two weeks, granted, media always hype up things. They always exaggerate. Or lie. It, it seems like we live in a country where the media is bent on a campaign of, of terrorism. And it, it doesn't matter even what channel you turn on. A few of them appear to be more accurate than others. But for the most part, they're always telling us the same message, the same thing. Such and such is such and such. Be afraid. So and so is so and so. Be afraid. You know, there's a hurricane hitting New Orleans. Be afraid. Uh, we're, we're retreating from Afghanistan, which that wasn't a retreat. You can call it what you like. It was, it was a calamitous. Be afraid. There'll be more terrorism. Be afraid. The drugs are getting worse. Be afraid. Fentanyl is invading our country. Be afraid. You know, always. And it doesn't matter what they tell you. Global warming is, is heating up the earth. The ice caps are melting. Be afraid. Well, maybe they are. You know, maybe some, you know, I'm just unwilling to say definitely anymore after years of observation I run, I, you know, I turn on my, my computer, they're driving past my house, and it's our fault the world is, is heating up and we're all going to die. Be afraid. I don't buy it. Disease is coming. Be afraid. We, we've survived a, a horrible and, and still ongoing pandemic. We have vaccine for it now, but how effective it is, I think, still in the future still remains to be seen. It's, it's proving not to be very effective. At least the, in Britain, they're no longer talking about locking us down. They're not going to lock people down because the virus is now endemic. And you're not going to stop it or slow it down anymore by lockdowns. I mean, and I, I was locked down, you know, 15 months I was locked down. 15. 15 months. And everybody I've heard from that, that I've heard or even anecdotally heard secondhand, anyone else who was disabled... The, the pandemic was a calamity for them. It was devastating, psychologically and emotionally devastating. The isolation, devastating. We, we know now certainly that, uh, although it's a good stopgap measure, we know that 
uh, remote education does not work. We know this. Um, so I think a lot of us have, and it doesn't matter where you stand politically, we've been through something that's very damaging, and we're still going through it. We're still in the midst. There's a new virus. Be afraid. There's a new variant. Be afraid. And all these people who've always told us for years and years, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. Okay, why? I mean, it's more than just they want our ratings. Be afraid. Watch our program. Be afraid. No, it's... it's there is... And I'm, I'm reluctant to put it in so bald a term as this, but there is a group behind these messages who wants to increase our compliance and their control. That That is what it is, and I can come to no other conclusion of that. And so the, the fear, well, I don't know... Individually, I don't know if too many philosophers have taken on the topic of, of fearfulness itself or being afraid of certain things. I know that some, some of them mention it, but I don't, I don't know of anyone who actually devotes huge swaths of their texts to it. I know there's a, a Platonic dialogue, which I don't know very well, called, called uh, On Courage. It's one of the middle-later dialogues. I don't know it so well. I think it's called Lysis or Lycaon or something like that. Uh, certainly Machiavelli talked about fear when he advised his hypothetical ruler, it's better to be feared than loved. I mean, that's anathema to us in a, in a free society. It's about being loved more than being feared. I mean, if someone's polls drop and everybody hates you, then you're immediately disqualified, at least morally so, for, for being the leader any longer. That's why they're always so obsessed and bent with their polls and their poll numbering and their 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 optics. So it's a foreign concept to us, better to be loved, feared than loved. That's sort of a foreign concept for us here in the West. Uh, Hobbes, Leviathan, certainly that book deals with fear. It's the fear of a bad, a bad government or a total anarchy. And I've, I've read it a few times, but I wouldn't claim to know that book well. It's a complicated, huge book. And certainly, in summary of his conclusions, he concludes that even if it's a bad government, even if it's a tyranny, anything is better than anarchy. Anything is better than the war of everyone against everyone. And so it's a huge driving force for the book he wrote, but it's not about fear, per se, or fearfulness. And I need to be careful, too, how I phrase this. Because, and maybe even before I continue with this even a little, I have to point out immediately that there's no such thing as fear separated and detached from an object. It's like anything you'd look at in a phenomenological analysis. You're afraid of something. Nobody's ever just, oh, I feel fear. Fear of what? Oh, I, I'm just terrified. I'm just... No, it's, it's never apart from an object or situation. You're always, one is always afraid of something. Afraid of crashing my car, maybe. Afraid of, uh, you know, if I'm married, afraid of it falling apart. Or afraid of, you know, the person being unfaithful. I'm afraid of people breaking into my house. I'm afraid of... There's always either a situation or a, or a, an object. object. Well, I'm afraid of hurricanes. I'm afraid of tornadoes. I'm afraid of spiders. And, and most of the time, the fears plane crashes or what have you, most of the time the fears are 
perhaps well justified. And all of them have varying degrees of likeliness, however. So some things one might be afraid of, it's never going to happen, ever. I'm afraid of aliens. Well, it could, I suppose, if they were aliens and, and they came to this planet, one, one, one could face an alien observation. I mean, we are, we've already been told an alien invasion. I mean, we've already been told that when they start to tell us about the aliens living on the moon in the moon base, that we better, we better trust our scientists, right? When there are aliens on the moon, we've been told this by our president, that when they talk about the aliens on the moon, we better believe our scientists, right? So, okay, I'm afraid of alien invasion. Well, the likeliness of it is, is nil. We've, we've never had one. We've never known anyone else who has had one. Uh, in, invasion by non-humans. So if one's afraid of that, your fears may be, although highly unlikely, they might also be quite unjustified. Because it's never happened. But if you if you say I'm afraid of of fire, I'm afraid of fire. My house, my house burning down. That's very justified. Fires happen all the time. There are, there are accidents all the time, and and sometimes the strangest and stupidest things. Electrical fire. You know, a light. You know, something falling, a heater falling, and it doesn't turn off automatically. It's, I mean, but but fear is never apart from an object or a situation. And a phenomenologist would say, well, because fear is bodily, there always has to be an object, and a subject-object relation. You're never just conscious of consciousness. You're, you're always conscious of something that you're seeing, you're touching, you're aware of, you're thinking of, because that's a relation to an object as well. If, you, if you're thinking of something, then you're in relation to that object. You're thinking, so your relation is rather abstract in that you're imagining the object or what the object represents to you, but you're in relation to it. There's never anything in consciousness that you experience. One might be able to argue this if, if you're very heavily, heavily drugged. You know, there's a split second of consciousness of nothing. You're, you no longer have an identity, ego death, or you're barely conscious. Or, you know, but I think I can... I can argue this point pretty clearly and and not misstep. So fear is fear of something or someone or some situation or some occurrence, future fear. I'm afraid of uh, disease or I'm afraid of... Uh, old age, I'm afraid of disability, I'm afraid, you know, anybody, everybody fears something. And in many cases, they're, although unlikely, they may be well justified. If they have happened, I'm afraid of plane crashes. Okay. It's very, very unlikely that your plane is going to crash. But it has happened. So we know it can happen. So being afraid of it isn't so much unjustified as it is unlikely. And it does you no good to be afraid of something that, that the odds of which are, are going to happen are almost nil. But you're never experiencing fear without that object or that, that situation, fearfulness. Social phobia. Well, I mean, what is that? I mean, it's diagnosed in the, the DSM-5, right? What is it? Social phobia? Something like that? Where you're, you're merely afraid of talking to people? You're afraid of social situations? You're not. You're afraid of those people hurting you. You're afraid of them making fun of you. You're afraid of them rejecting you. You know, you're never just blindly fearful. 
So in terms of a philosophical analysis, I don't know of any specifically that talks about fear. Maybe Spinoza, he goes into that some. But fear is always connected to the fear of bodily harm or the fear, you know, as I say, a fear of situations. And so to kind of try to talk philosophically about fear, I don't know, there aren't too many that I can draw on immediately. I want to reserve the right to go back and skim through some, some stuff and try to figure out if there is anything that gives some guidance. Um, certainly the religious scholars, the, um, the theologians, Fear is very important for them. Fear is, you better be afraid of your God or else <clears throat> you won't follow his statutes, right? Um, so certainly when I think about fearfulness, I think of Soren Kierkegaard, and he wrote the concept of dread. But he never means you're in dread of, of sharks. You're afraid of meteors hitting you and killing you. You're, you're afraid of, of the divine, you're afraid of inner, and the same. It's it's what um, uh, in the idea of the holy Rudolf Otto talks about the the fear before the holy of the the dread of of a power so much greater than you. Just the awareness of that power that is 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 awe inspiring, terrifying. You know, take off thy shoes for where thee stands is holy ground, right? But that's not the same thing as fear. There may be a level of intensity in certain existential fears that might rival that in their intensity, but that are afraid of things very, very bodily and very potentially possible. The fear of a collapse of your nation, for example, your your fear of invasion, or your fear of the food supply being cut off, the fear of famine, the fear of war. The fe- These things are very, very justified. Until recently, I would have said... It's very unlikely we'll have a famine in the United States. It's one thing if you live in the U.S. and you're afraid of, of a famine. Unlikely. I'm not, I'm not so ready to say that now. I'm not so quick to say that. If you're living in an exceptionally poor developing country, you know, and you are afraid of war or famine, yeah, you, you probably remember one. You probably experienced one. And your fears are completely justified. Completely. Um, but so Kierkegaard, I can't take no. I can take no refuge in in Kierkegaard because technically he's not a philosopher, and really he's a he's a sort of theologian of a philosophic persuasion. And when he speaks of fear and trembling before your God, he means it in the theological sense, in the concept of dread. The same, your fear of a, of the Almighty, of a higher power, experiencing that higher power, and your fear that you don't measure up, which is true, you don't. You're not supposed to go up to God and say, huh, I'm, I'm perfect, God, I'm your equal. You should, if you're ever before the divine, you should be in absolute paralysis and terror. I mean, of course, I, I, I don't want to misstep here. Since I don't believe in such a God, I can't say I hold fear for God. Although I reserve the right to be made afraid if, if it proves that I am wrong, after all. I mean, in theory, God could trick me. If he were angry with me and said, wow, you know, that rogue philosopher, you know what, I'll fix him. I'll, I'll make him believe I don't exist and have never existed. And then won't he be shocked at the end of it all? So I'm not attacking anyone who is religious. I've just, my conclusion that I've arrived at 
after many, many years of exploration and, and consideration, is that there, there, there is no, there's no God. Perhaps there's psychologically the need for one with most humans. Um, and, and if that's the case, I don't want to deprive anyone else of a mechanism that keeps them healthy. Or even if you really want to be crass about it, if it keeps them in line, I'd rather those people were terrified of God and that'll keep them from beating me up and robbing me in the street. You know, if fear of God is all that holds them, then, then, then let them be afraid. Um, and in a lot of ways, it is, it is fear that motivates us to, to obey our laws. The laws in our country are backed up by men with guns. We've given them guns and said, you can use these guns on criminals. And we all approve of, of their right to carry those weapons. You know, our police, of course, now I don't think I can say that with accuracy in this climate, in this day and age. I, I can no longer make that statement and have it be a statement of pure factual correctness. Since there, there's, and it's all political. These things that are destabilizing our country, and it doesn't even matter which side it's on. I, I know where I tend to fall, and I know where I fell when I was young, and I understand why then and now. But it really, it's almost irrelevant. And it, it, the, the president being set now, wherein we have president after president after president, whom the opposition always declares impeach, impeach, impeach. Impeachment was supposed to be an almost unheard of occasion, a rare tool to rid the nation of a tyrant. That's, that's what it was, its purpose was for, to help us protect ourselves against tyranny, not against somebody we don't like because we don't like their policies. You know, but in this case, I, I have to ask myself yet again, I might have said that and been somewhat accurate. I can no longer say that. I can no longer say, well, when, you know, when has our president ever been incapacitated, you know, in rare occasions in history, through illness, or they were murdered. But we've never, I don't, I don't recall a time in our history, and I'm no history, history um, expert, but I don't think we've ever had a situation in this country where most people agree the president isn't up to the job. And he should, uh, he should be deposed from office. You know, in other countries, they have mechanisms to bring down their government if their rulers are incompetent. I mean, Great Britain is, in England, they, it's ruthless. It's, it's Byzantine. If, if it reaches the point where they really think you're incapable, your friends and your enemies will both go after you. You know, and they can, bring, they can make motions with a coalition. They can bring down any government if there are enough of them. And it seems to be more difficult in this country for us to do that, which may be good, it may be bad. Um, so we don't have, a, we have a, an increasingly shifting electorate and one, one term is Republican, one term is Democratic, one term is Republican, and they both tend to screw things up. Uh, certainly in the eyes of the other side they do. But they they all tend to screw some things up. It just it's it's almost like the country is wobbling with an ever increasing axial wobble, 
and pretty soon it's just it has to come crashing down either it has to come crashing down or there has to be a dramatic shift and a change um i'd feel delighted if if someone put it to our media and shut them up for a while or at least forced them to no longer be because they lie about nearly everything journalism now i i would be I would be hard-pressed now uh, to... It's not like 50 years ago when the journalists really did reveal stuff that we had the right to know and that was bad, you know, and and they were the intrepid journalists looking for the truth. Now the journalists are part of the lie. They're part of the propaganda. They're part of the, you know, they're part of the attempt to intimidate into compliance. Intimidate into compliance. Yeah. There's chemicals in your water. Be afraid. Well, maybe you ought to be, you know, but but there's little good you can do about it unless you actually test your water. How will you know? And everything. It doesn't matter what story you watch and on which media network anymore. Certainly the big three are, are all defunct, and, and, and I, I don't think they have much left going for them. There may still be a few, but not really. The papers the media and they all have they pretty Settings. much now, two factor authentication Whoa, stop that. With an extra layer of security. stop button duration 29 minutes 45 seconds okay just ignore that nonsense i don't know why it did that why it determined to duration 29 minutes 50 seconds stop button i'm never ever ever going to have two factor authentication ever it 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 renders the phone unusable effectively i'm never going to do it so in any case uh, i don't know why it did that did i tilt it somehow and I'm tilting the phone now, and I can't seem to get it to repeat the, the flash. Oh, well. Um, so I'm not really sure of, of a philosophical analysis of the condition whereby one is fearful of a certain object or a situation. Probably nowadays, I mean, that's the proper domain of a psychologist, not of a, of a philosopher now. I mean, years ago, perhaps, but not now, where it's always been the domain of theologians. If, you've, if you really want to read something that's fun, depending on how you read it, of course, if you're truly a believer, it, it can be awe-inspiring if you read this. But uh, Jonathan's Edwards, uh, Jonathan Edwards, is, it's a Protestant Puritan preacher, uh, early 1700s, I believe. I don't remember his dates, but it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it really is very much the hellfire and brimstone kind of a sermon. It's, it's very, very much about the, 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 the miserable worms that are human, you know, the wretched and despicable insects that, that are human, and the only reason you're not being cast into hell right now is because of God's love and mercy, and he could do it any time. You know, it's, it's, it's just, you read it and it's kind of, it's over the top, except that people actually believed it, and Maybe some still do. So as I, as I try to engage the idea of being fearful of a certain object or situation, I can bring different philosophers to bear to help construct my argument, but my information and opinion is no better or well-informed than anybody else's is. And so I want to 
proceed carefully um, and with the caveat that I don't have any any answers. Uh, I was actually, I've been requested to discuss this topic, and so I'm, I'm trying to to answer their um, their request to me that I that I try to address this. And I think because we have all been through this horrible pandemic, we've all been through, and and we've also been as, as if the pandemic wasn't frightening enough. We've been through a constant campaign, and again, I'd think you'd be hard pressed to disagree with me, no matter where you fall on the spectrum. We've been through a year and a half of deliberate and well-coordinated intimidation. And then when you, when you add this on top of you know, the, the, the increasing political correctness, the fear of offending somebody, the fear of saying the wrong thing, it doesn't matter whether or not you've said the wrong thing. It just matters whether somebody else says you've said the wrong thing, and that's enough to end your career. What's the wrong thing? I'll make it up. Go ahead. You can say anything is the wrong thing, and they'll be tumbling down. Uh, for the moment, as I'm doing this podcast, and it's what there, it's in a, a neutral, tiny site with a few followers. I, I do appreciate you all for listening to me. It's remarkable, you know. But if I were, if I were one of these podcasters or talk show hosts or whatever this is that I'm doing with a million followers. There's always going to be people trying to attack you, and there's always going to be people lying and slandering you, or misrepresenting or misqualifying what you say. So we live in a we live in a time of the steadily evaporating um, expression of free speech or of free ideas. And in philosopher, that's in a philosophy that's catastrophic because if you can't examine points from all angles because you're intimidated into not inquiring then you no longer have philosophy then you then you have um just another yes man another propagandist towing the line if you're in philosophy it's incumbent on you to examine every point even the points you know going into it you don't agree with examine them anyway and try to agree with them you should know them well enough so that you can defend their points better than your opponent that's how you win arguments in philosophy but that's also how you gain empathy and how you how you gain a sense of of insightfulness you don't gain it by just reciting a a kind of a mantra and an orthodoxy you gain it by exploring to their very depths. And sometimes, even for the person examining the concepts, that can, be, that can be a frightening exploration. It can. Because of its implications, because of, you know, the, 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 the implications that it says about human beings. But you have to be, if not objective, you have to be at least fearless in your exploration. You can't, you can't be stymied by fear if you're doing anything that's remotely to do with philosophy. And, of course, my views are quite antiquated and archaic. You know? uh, even, uh, I don't know, even cute. Because now philosophy really is about prevailing orthodoxy. And in a lot of cases, philosophy is about bashing the opposition 
not about analyzing or empathizing. It's about smashing. It's about, it's about confining, restricting. So we live in a period of, of steadily deteriorating freedom of speech. And I, I think in all of these cases, th- th- you can't have governments in the West that function the way we've functioned with the level, the standard of living that we've had. And most of us, even someone dirt poor like me, you know, I'm holding this amazing device in my hand, this, this iPhone. People have been doing pretty well in the West for a short time, but long by, uh, long according to the, the prevailing viewpoint of a generation. Short in terms of overall human history. And even so, then, short and remarkable and against the norm. Usually in history there's a lot of war and violence, blood and oppression and disease and death and and horror, the stuff that Hobbes was writing about, where we've had a period of several hundred years at most, but we've had that period of several hundred years, where with the exception of a few dramatic situations, we've been living in a time of peace We've been living in a time of relative security, although that's gone out the window now, I suspect. We've lived in a time of, of a time where you could rely on your system to work for you and to try to work in a way that's objective, in a way that, that doesn't show favoritism, although that's steadily evaporating as well. But I've heard even in, in some countries, you know, if you need to go to the DMV to get your motor vehicle registered, for example, if the guy's in a bad mood and doesn't like you, you don't get your car registered. You know, there's, there's corruption in all societies, but in ours, comparatively little. I mean, and now you'll say, no, there's all these things wrong. Yes, there are. Except that my life isn't directly, and probably yours also, isn't directly affected by, we turn on the lights, the power comes on. We turn on the faucet, the water comes on. We go out into our cars to drive or to get on a bus or to travel, and we can be pretty reasonably sure we'll arrive there safely. Pretty sure that. No attackers on the road, no bandits, no checkpoints, no traps. Okay, no, no bad roads, no loss of roads. You know, I mean, in the mountains in, in Colorado, you can't go over some of the passes in the, the depth of winter. You know, but we don't really know what that's like. Oh, the road, the spring rains, the roads wash out. We don't have to worry about that. Our roads are pretty stable. Our vehicles are relatively reasonably safe. They work. We get into them and they don't blow up or fall apart or the tires fall off and kill people. And yes, we've had these things happen, but it's the exception, not the rule. Where we can reasonably assume in our homes we're not going to be attacked, um by by police or by criminals or by robbers or bandits or uh, paramilitaries, death squads. Okay, we've never really... And again, you're going to say, well, there are... But, uh, the exception, not the rule. In the average small to medium-sized city in America, even if there's gang activity, they're not going to come into your neighborhood and and threaten to burn your house down if you don't pay them protection. I know, I know. Well, there's... Okay, yeah, we, we have a number of people living under those conditions. It's appalling. Uh, inner city housing projects, impoverishment, violence, 
we have these things exist in our country. And for some people, unfortunately, it is the norm, not the exception, living with that, with that sort of violence. But still, overall, in our society, there's a level of stability that indicates for most of us we're, we're living in a, and compared certainly compared to human history, we're living in a very stable place, a golden age even. A golden age that I suspect is, is now ending. We're watching it end on our television sets. And unlike our history where these things took a long time to coalesce, the fall of empire took hundreds of years, or even, you know, maybe dozens, tens. We're talking about, at most, dozens of days. This, this whole thing, if things are really, truly ripe and the thing comes crashing down, it would be done in days, not years. Hours, maybe even, not days. Our, our computers, we've sped up our society, we're so heavily integrated now, and we're connected, and we're... we're so hyper aware of of the world even far away from us that if if terrible things start happening on mass across this country the collapse of our of our economy our currency for instance this damn pandemic everybody was panicked and the, the day they closed everything down i was in the store trying to get stuff that day and i didn't i didn't know it was going to happen i suspected maybe it was coming but at the time we'd been told we'd been lied to course that that covid was a disease that young people didn't have to worry about and even people into middle age it'd be like a cold but that our elders were vulnerable to to dying from it and so of course when they be, when they closed the entire country down all in mass in one day initially it it seemed excessive it seemed excessive. And when, when my thinking at the time was, and we've been told this because we've been lied to, when haven't we been lied to? When this, with regard to this pandemic, we've not been told the truth even once. Okay? And they told us, well, we can just protect our, our elders, our grandparents, you know, and we can shield them and we can, you know, most of us might get it, but it'll blow over and we'll be fine. You know, a few people will, might die, how tragic, you know, Hundreds of thousands, millions of people die. And so initially it, it felt like, back in early 2020, it, it seemed like things had gone off the rails. And that happened all at once, everywhere, all at once, everywhere. In every store in this country, every, every grocery store, there was a run on, you know, and on ridiculous items, right? Toilet paper. Why? Because if we're locked in our houses for six months, you better have toilet paper. I mean, just ridiculous. Hand sanitizer, sanitizing wipes. You know, there were, there were even on the first day, it had been hours, like in the morning, they said, we're going to lock down. By the afternoon, you couldn't find that stuff anywhere. And so when I, when I talk about a decay of this country coming, there's stuff going wrong right now, and we can see it on the horizon. But for most of us, it isn't reality yet. It isn't here just yet. You know, and when it does come, it'll happen quickly. It'll happen swiftly. And it'll happen in a uniform manner across the whole country. And, you know, all these other things on top of it. We've had natural disasters. We've had hurricanes. We've, you know, New Orleans is still underwater and in the dark as far as I'm aware. You know, they've started to restore the power, but... You know, God help us if there's ever an earthquake and... California or Washington or something, um, 
I think the cascade from that might collapse the entire country if it really does hit the so-called big one. People joke about that. It's no joke. If it really did hit, that could bring the entire country down. The, the, um, or at least cause such destabilization that we'd be at risk of breaking up into smaller enclaves where I can imagine the states here in New England, if there were a, a, a 5 million refugees, I can imagine people voting to seal the border of the state if it can be done, prevent them from coming in. You know, it'd, it'd be mayhem, it'd be havoc, it'd be chaos. So how, how reasonable all these fears are, it's no longer, I'm no longer capable of saying, because before I would have said to you, well, it's unreasonable to be fearful of crashing in a plane, although planes do crash. It's unlikely you'll be on one that crashes. And so they call that a phobia, except that planes do crash. And what happens if you're afraid of the plane crash and it happens? Then you're no longer phobic, you were spot on, right? And I would have said, well, our government is relatively stable. Our president is relatively stable. I might not agree with so-and-so, but they're rel- I never had fear during the Bush administration that he was utterly and profoundly incompetent and incapable of exercise. They joked about it. You know, the comedians all called him stupid or called him... But th- I never woke up in the morning with a sense of, I'm on a jet plane that's on autopilot and about to crash and there's no pilot on the plane. And that's how it feels now in America today. And I I may speak for some of you, I may not, but that's certainly the impression that I get. Um, And judging from the media, who, who, it's criminal what the media are doing. It's it's gone beyond the scrabbling for ratings. It's gone beyond, you know, the the one-upsmanship of contests to try to find the biggest story, you know, the story that causes the most outrage and causes, no, what, it, what they're doing now is criminal. It is as criminal what they're doing as it says in certain documents, maybe even in the Constitution somewhere, I don't know. But if I'm in a movie theater and I yell fire and there is no fire, I can be put into prison for doing that, especially if people get hurt or die during the scramble to evacuate. That is a crime. It is, it, is, it is a crime of assault, in a way, where you're deceiving people and their actions lead to them getting injured or killed. That is what the media is doing to us day after day after day after day, all of them, media. I'm finding it more, you know, and even some of the BBC is tottering. I mean, you know, I'm having to watch sources from India to find something that's even remotely objective, that's not tainted by the political uh, infiltration and corruption. I guess I'd have to put it that way. So are there reasons, are there good reasons? I can no longer tell you. There are reasons to be afraid. There are plenty of reasons to be afraid. Are they good ones? I have no idea. To me, they all seem like they're pretty well justified this this time now, today. People's fears seem pretty justified to me. My fears seem pretty justified. You know, the fear of destabilization of war, of terrorism. 
I mean, most of us have have been through the war on terror. We remember September 11th. I mean, I was a grown man when that when that happened. There are some kids out there whose first memories, you know, is, is the towers coming down. Are they right to be afraid? Yeah. You know, and again, why are we right to be afraid? Because it's happened. And it's happened fairly often, actually. You know, in other countries, certainly England, you know, 7-7, subways blew up. You know, you could go back all the way to 95 and the Aum Shonrikyo. If you were in Japan, perhaps that was a frightful thing to, to live through. But the rest of the world just kind of shrugged their shoulders and, and went on about their day, which shouldn't have reacted that way. It was a horrible terrorist attack by a religious cult, <laughs> right? But it seems now there, there are assassinations, things are blowing up, countries are being destabilized. There are more and more that th- we're having an increase of of, uh, of bombing. And it's going to be here. It's not going to be in Yemen or in, in Kenya. It, it's going to be here. Although if you're in Yemen or Kenya or whatever, yeah, I get it. You, The reasons why you have been afraid soon will be ours. And there, there will be less separation then between us and these other nations. We will have all suffered these same deprivations, these same human catastrophes and, and tragedies. And we'll no longer be able to insulate ourselves and hide behind our oceans and our democracy and our media, of whom I have no respect for. I can't remember once where a reporter ever interviewed me about blindness and the story actually came out being reasonable or even a facsimile of, an approximate facsimile of what I attempted to say. They, they have always distorted my words and made me look by turns either stupid or pitiable or, or quaint, you know, the human interest type stories. Our media, we, we will no longer be able to hide behind our corrupted journalists and say, well, they, they blew up that base in, in Kenya. But that's not here, that's there. That stuff doesn't happen here. Well, it does, and it will. And why will it? Well, take your pick. I mean, I think people on both sides of the spectrum have good reasons to say that it will happen here, and they know the reason why. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they know the reason. Uh because our government and our country and our democracy is, is teetering on the brink of tyranny. Whose tyranny? I don't know. It depends on who comes out on top whenever the fight starts. But a tyranny nonetheless. We have an increasing tyranny now from the left. It just so happens that it's from the left. Tomorrow it could be from the right. But tyranny nonetheless. And I'm against, I'm against all tyranny. I'm against any society or government that silences people that they don't like what they have to say. If you're not doing things, you, can, you should be able to say almost whatever you need to say. If it's not openly slanderous or offensive in some manner, you know, attacking the person, ad hominem. They used to call it ad hominem in, in basic logic. See? Do you think I should hear a siren like that and not at least think quickly to myself, huh, what's going on? Should I be afraid of it? This is a country road. Hardly any traffic. This, the road that I live on doesn't even have a double line in the center of it. It's probably just an ambulance, okay? 
but it underlines and illustrates my point, and I think it does so very effectively. Be prepared to hear a lot more of that. A lot more sirens. And a lot more spewage and garbage from our, our misguided at best and utterly contemptible propagandist media at worst. Because that's what the future is. And how does philosopher deal with it? Well, philosophy tends to, well, depending on the philosopher, I mean, Hegel is, I think, more in support of, of a strong, authoritarian, tyrannical government than, than John Stuart Mill, perhaps. But, I mean, usually, usually philosophers fall on the side of liberty, libertarian type. I don't mean libertarian, the political movement in this case. I mean libertarian in the original sense of the word, that is, that one, one is free. You know, one is free to speak and think as they wish, to read as they wish, to worship as they wish. I think most of the, after all, they, they murdered Socrates. The state murdered Socrates in Athens. So I think philosophy has a tradition to uphold of liberty, of the defense of liberty. Whose liberty doesn't matter? Everybody's liberty. Everybody's liberty. Um, philosophy has a stake in this. It's not like political politics. It's not like there's a branch political philosophy, but it's not cultural, it's not even a critique, it's not even a social critique, cultural critique, nearly all of which are, are unapologetically and solidly extreme left-wing Marxist. They say that. They're proud of it. I think maybe philosophy has a place in the world um, to come to the defense of liberty and against any tyranny. It doesn't matter who the tyr tyrannical actors are. It doesn't matter who the people are who are, are orchestrating the tyranny. Philosophy has a, a, a position to take against that, you know, before all the lights go out. And that certainly is the take I have against any tyranny. I'm against any, any sort of oppression and tyranny. Um, I'm against, now granted, our police have authority to do violence. We need them to have that authority because if somebody's breaking in my house or if somebody's raping my neighbor, okay, the, the cops better be able to shoot that person dead. If, if they think their training and their past experience deems that they need to use excessively harsh force to stop the crime, so be it. But for the most part, Again, some would disagree, and they'd be right to, because I know in certain areas in this country, there's way too much police violence. It's quite oppressive. Okay, I understand this, but we can relatively expect to feel relatively safe in our homes, most of us, for the most part, most of the time. You won't go into your church in the morning and then have death squads come in and start shooting people in your, in your congregation by early afternoon. We don't have these things yet. We, we do have school shootings. And in a way, kids in school, teachers teaching it, that's one of the most dangerous jobs there is in today's world now, isn't it? And I don't buy the solution. Oh, take away the guns. There's too many guns. Take away the guns. No, because the other day, somebody attacked a bunch of people with a knife. The attackers will attack. It's better if we have guns and are responsible with our weapons 
than to just on on mass take them all away. Because again, why do we have the weapons? We're allowed to have them by our government, our constitution, to prevent a tyranny. Right? That's why. I mean, most people they don't think about that so much, and some of the ones who do are probably paranoid and over the top. But are they now? Can we really say that in light of the last few months, the last few years? They're allowed to possess weapons if they're legal, responsible gun owners, and that we, we need them to have them to stop tyranny. It's too late in this country. Now, in other countries, what would I say to them? Don't let the guns get out, <laughs> right? That's what I would say. People living in, in the UK or whatever, hardly anybody has any guns. Good, make sure that nobody ever does, right? Because the genie gets out of the bottle, and that's it. You can't go backwards now. It's too late. They're here. They're here, and most of us have them. I've even been, I, I know how to shoot. Most of us have them. Most of us know people who have them. It's too late. You can't just send in truckloads of, of FBI, federal troops, whatever, armed to the teeth themselves, and say, give us your guns. That's tyranny. That's tyranny. Now, if it's in England, nobody has guns. No one expects to have them. Maybe a few hunters... Uh, on the moors or something. They have a rifle or a shotgun or something. But nobody really feels the need, it seems, to to have them. Okay, good. Keep it certain that, that nobody gets their hands on them, right? Because even the police don't carry weapons. Yeah, they don't need to. There are armed police in the UK. There have been mass shootings in the UK. There have been. Um, and when they had to call upon armed police to take care of the gunmen, it was it was... They could do it. But he did an enormous amount of damage because of one, he had one rifle. I mean, the best thing to do in that situation is to try to understand criminals are always going to seek out the strongest and biggest weapon, whatever that weapon is, and they're always going to break your laws to do so. It doesn't matter how strict your gun laws are, the criminal is going to get them. So what am I saying? Is it good or bad? Do we have too many guns? It's probably bad. We have too many guns. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm glad plenty of people have them and that there is that sort of that check against a tyrannical government. Could we realistically have a revolution against the tyranny? Well, probably no. But still, the fact that there's that check. Everything in this country is about checks and balances, checks and balances, all of which are going out the window as, as I watch, as we watch this calamity unfold in front of us. And again, I don't think it matters where you fall on the political spectrum. The way I'm able to the way I'm able to contextualize this. Um because I'm willing to concede, you know, yeah, there probably are too many people with guns. It's irresponsible. If only there were fewer. Okay, but there isn't. And and we have them and it's you know, the best thing you can do is somehow try to instill increased responsibility and most most legal gun owners, owners who have guns are exceptionally responsible with them but there are some idiots who have their guns and they're you know they're idiots so they behave like idiots that unfortunately that's part of human nature but i think i can i can i can express this in such a manner as to reach all of you whether you're on the left or the right or the center or apolitical or or however because this is a human and in other parts of the world it's the situation is somewhat different but 
in the end, if they live in a stable country with a with a strong government and you know police that aren't corrupted or however it goes, people don't feel like they need weapons to defend themselves. They might need them to kill animals on their farms or, you know, chupacabra or something, okay? But here, you can't reverse. See, here comes another one. Hmm? What do you think? And And... I'm hoping that these sirens are left in because it underscores my point. There. So, so as in terms of a philosopher who who talked about fear, I think the most universal of them would be would be um, in the Star of Redemption. Uh, Franz Rosenzweig, in the beginning of that book talked about that what drives philosophy ultimately is the fear of death, is the unknown, the fear of death. That it's the fear of death that makes us all philosophers. Um, he didn't elaborate much more on that, but I think it was pretty telling that he pointed that out at the very beginning of his book, which is a, is a great survey of human societies, the best culture, the best religion of a society um, that gives it the most to work with, I think. I mean, I, I haven't read Rosenzweig in seven years, and it's a complicated book. But ultimately, he, he does have kind of a utopian ideal that, in the end, if societies follow A, B, and C, it'll be the best society, uh, the closest to the Messiah, who knows? I mean... Um, but he did mention that at the beginning of the Star of Redemption. I mean, he does call it the Star of Redemption, after all, and he lays out five or six different points that help protect one's civil society and civil standing, right? Um, beyond that, I like I can think of others who talked about justice as a as a as an abstraction. I can think of others who talked about different aspects of freedom or government. They're all political. But the fear, the absolute fear itself, I can't really think of a philosophical analyzer who writes about specifically. Um, certainly not in an abstract form, perhaps in conjunction with a contrast in others. Maybe Spinoza. I'll have to go back over and review the ethics and see how he mentions fear, how he talks about fear. So there's nobody I can turn to, 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 to end this. And I have no, no suggestion. I have no answer. I don't have a, I mean, I can barely formulate the analysis. I certainly don't have an answer. Not from any of the great religions. I can't even supply an answer that would be satisfactory from my knowledge of religious scholarship. And that's, in the end, ultimately, if you're truly in fear, it doesn't have an answer. If you're truly, and, you, and your society is truly in a state of freefall and you're in fear, you don't have an answer. You might have a plan. You might have a, a course of action that you could take that may or may not keep you alive, but at least you can do something. Because the thing that drives fear most of all is, is the helplessness, the, the sense of the incapacity to do anything. 
And that's usually what the terrorists want. They want you to feel like there's nothing you can do, so you have to do what they say, whoever the terrorists are. And when you're in fear and you, you are helpless, you no longer have the mechanism of law to turn to. You don't have recourse to that. You don't have a mechanism of, of, of your community because it's been annihilated socially. Everyone is isolated. Everybody is lonely. Who can you really turn to? There's no one you can turn to right? Some of you that, that still have churches, you know, be, be grateful. I, I, I have a great deal of respect and admiration for, because churches are about community. They may help you if hard times fall upon you, but for the most part, most of us, even many who are religious, we don't have affiliations. There's nobody we can turn to if things go badly if someone gets hurt or sick or God forbid someone dies or if your house burns down. Okay, my family's house burned down almost 40 years ago. Uh, no one helped us. I mean, it sounds hard to believe, but it's a fact. Nobody. No one in this town, this community. And that, and that was 40 years ago, so I'm not blaming anyone for it now. But the fact remains, no one helped us. No, it was almost 50 years ago now. And the thing that I might have more of a fear of than, than anything else at this moment, it'll change tomorrow, is the fear of the loss of community, the loss of social support. I don't just mean social networking and, and protect you from loneliness, which is pretty critical as well, that people don't go out and do things together. They don't have communal dinners anymore they don't have and you can you'll find them and you'll try to tell me i'm wrong but i'm telling you that you're finding something that's the exception not the rule it's the exception not the rule your facebook friends if if god forbid somebody killed a member of your family would any of your facebook friends i, I think in some cases some of the the social influencers their fans might protect them their fans that love them might might help raise money for them. You could do a GoFundMe campaign or something. Okay, but for the most part, nobody would lift a finger. They would say, oh, that's so sad, that's so tragic. What can I do? And that's how fear takes root. When you think, that's so sad, that's so tragic, what can I do? And it, it may be a small, small thing that you can do. This is all I can do. This. And I'm eternally grateful that you've been listening to me all this time. But this is all I can do while, while freedom yet remains, while the, the lights still stand, you know, while we have a chance. And I, I, again, it doesn't matter. I mean, we'll, we'll argue later, it, it, but it doesn't matter where are you on the political spectrum. It doesn't. Because I think everybody can identify with this sense of, of, of increasing loss and, and fear of what losing that, what its implications really are. And I think everybody... They see it in their people around them, their family, their friends, such as they are. They, they see it in their, in their peer groups, in their jobs. It's, it's there. It's the in, increasing isolation, increasing, and not just loneliness, and though that's increasing too. I mean isolation. I mean people in isolation who can't really do anything to change the trajectory of either themselves or of their, their community or their nation because they're isolated. And ultimately, that's the only, only defense that, 
that we have, and that's what used to make this country great, is our unity. We fought a war to maintain that unity, and we won it narrowly. But we were willing to die to preserve the union. To die. And in those days, there were, there were terrible things going on in history. Pick up any history book, okay? But it was the fact that the people were unified that social f- progress was even made at all, that forward momentum occurred at all. It was because of unity. And of course, the enemies can say that too, that their unity, you know, a, a, a strong group, revolutionary or terrorist or whatever you want to call it, that's strongly unified and is set on their purpose, are very, very dangerous. They know it. It's a fact. Human unity. And secondarily to that, I might suggest that it's, it's love that conquers fear, because love conquers isolation. Isolation. It's, it's the, the ultimate garden for all fear is isolation. I mean, and now we live in a society that's before one might have said communities were built around their unity, they're, they're built around their church, they were built around their community center, uh, their town hall or whatever it is. But now we have to say communities live in individual isolation, a unified isolation that everybody shares in isolation who are connected by their, their internet. And I'm using the internet, so obviously I think highly of the internet. They're isolated but connected by their, their, their Facebook and their internet and their, their FaceTime or their Snapchat or wh- whatever the fuck it is, okay? But they all, they all share this, this communal isolation, uh, um, an isolation that more and more people uh, dwell in and they expect others dwell in it as well. So the, even the expectation of community is failing, you, would, you wouldn't even expect now. Certainly your neighbors don't give a damn. What would they do for you? You know, If you're lucky, one will call the police. If the police haven't been defunded, somebody breaking into your house, your neighbor might call the police for you, but nobody's gonna, no one's going to come help you. Right? There's no people who are... I mean, you could almost be attacked on the street, and there may be a few. There are always brave people everywhere. There are always altruistically minded people in every crowd. So you, you can't, I can't 100% make this assertion without the rebuttal of other so-and-so, they'll interfere. No, well, no, I don't think people would. I think in those cases where people have, they were lucky. And there's altruists in every group. There's usually a small number of pure altruistic people in any community or society. But for the most part, you could get beaten and robbed on the street somewhere in some city and no one would give a damn. I mean, at least blindness has, has shown me that there are still some people out there who have enough civic sense. They do care. People are, I think some of them were drawn to me because of, of, of blindness, the spectacle that handicaps tend to present and people's fearfulness of handicaps. But I could say when I was last in a big city for a short time, there were still plenty of good people who either correctly or misguidedly thought they needed to interfere with my life for my own good. I mean, that, that gives me some sense of hope there are still people out there, but I expect that number is decreasing. And if, <laughs> I wouldn't expect, you know, I wouldn't expect it. Don't count on it. And we have to, that's, 
I guess if I come away with any kind of answer, I was wrong. I guess that's it. We have to try to be unified. We have to, you know, the Christians used to say this, so did the Jews, and even in the Muslims as well, in the Quran. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? What does that mean? That means if, if, if they're in some kind of trouble and you think they're hurt, you help them as though you would help yourself in the same situation if you could. And that tends to de-escalate fear and helplessness. It tends to throw a monkey wrench in that mechanism of isolation, which the isolated are, are always weaker. They're, they're always weaker. And, you know, nature, nature shows us this, but human society can pretend to be separated from nature. And we can delude ourselves into thinking we don't follow natural laws. Um, well, imagine the isolation if the trucks stopped coming to your supermarket. Would you be better off or worse? More helpless or less? What if the, all the, um, the mail deliveries, all the, the different little items that you need to use to run your household, what if they're no longer available? What if the power goes down or the, the water you might come to realize that being isolated is extremely detrimental to your continued life, certainly to your well-being. But I, outside of that, and it's, it is, I know it's a cliche, I don't, I don't have an action, I don't have a suggestion, a course of action, except that people need to they need to pay more attention and open their eyes. And not just to pay attention to what they want to hear, but to pay attention to the implications of everything that they do here, whether it's in concert with their political opinions or not. Their opinions will change. If you, if you change a situation, someone's political opinions change with it. Most people are pretty flexible when it comes to that. They've, they've made that anathema in this country. You know, you're flip-flopping, you're flip-flopping. But that's not because it's a bad idea. If, if you change your opinion... Because the facts change, then you should change your opinion. That's just common sense. You should, with, with learning of different facts, then you have to adjust your conclusions accordingly. But they're trying to convince people not to do that. Why? Again, think about it. Isolation. People are easier to control if they're afraid, and groups that are always at each other's throats are vastly easier to control and to lead around by the nose, then it's simple. You just get them to beat up on each other until you can do what you want to do without their opposition. Then by the time they realize what's happened, it's too late and they're too weak. That's not how democracies work. We don't, we don't live in democratic societies where you're, you're deliberately pitting groups against one another and deliberately isolating so that everybody feels like a minority. That's not how you run a democracy. That's not how you live in one. That's not how you conduct one. So in the end, I've been told sometimes that, that um, my podcasts, people feel reassured listening. I don't feel like I can say much that's reassuring today except that. And if, if this in any way verifies to you that you're not alone in this world, that's the most I expect. That's the most reassurance I can expect to communicate to any other human being 
is to let them be aware that they're not alone. Beyond that, I haven't the, I haven't the charisma or the intellect, the capabilities to do much beyond that. And that's, that's as good of a start as any if the start must be made. So fear, fearfulness, yeah. Yeah, we live in a time of fear. Of. But we live in a time awash with fear. And we can't live in this for much longer without either a turning point being reached for the better or for the worse, but there has to be one. This can't continue indefinitely. So that's, that's I'll be done with my yammering for this, for this hour, and I'm going to try to put out more material for everybody, and it'll be of a different nature than this. It won't be quite so somber or as, um, it won't be so much Unitarian in its expression. You know, just, um, but I hope this, I hope that even this, I hope in spite of that it may not be the most pleasant thing in the world for you to have heard, I hope you can come away with a sense of the importance that you don't let others in your life feel alone and that you also are not, that you are not. And that's an important start for giving society another try, right? We can go in a different direction than this. And so I hope in spite of the heaviness of this, the unpleasantness of this, that, that in any case you enjoyed my, my words, my pro- program, whatever you, whatever you need to call this. I'm going to be trying to make some changes in the next few months to improve this podcast a bit. And I'm going to try to increase the amount of material coming out it has to be dramatically increased. I've let way too much time go by. And to try to increase the breadth of it. And in time, I want to try to build a more traditional model. Um, I'll have to see. If more of you listen and more of you are gaining and you feel like you're gaining something from what I'm saying, you know, then then I want to try to build a more traditional structure of a, of a website podcast but in any event I I hope this finds you well as we go into this fall and that that you're that you're okay that your friends and family are okay so we'll talk again very soon hopefully sooner than this last gap of time And we will meet again under the shadow of the lily.